You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. So today we're talking about hope, the Bible and psychology in conversation. What are you hoping for for Christmas? Let's start with presents. I, uh, I don't have high hopes this year. I think I may have stuffed it up for myself because in October, for a birthday present, I gave my husband what I thought at the time was a great idea. I gave him a window vacuum for him to clean our sliding doors. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's got the cleaning bit and then it's got a suction vacuum, battery power to suck all the dirty water out. And I thought he would be really thrilled with that. But um, anyway, I'm bracing myself for what I might get. And to make it worse... My birthday is four days before Christmas, so I'm thinking maybe a mop one day and a bucket for Christmas. Anyway, we'll see. But is hoping for a present a good use of the word hope? After all, I could say I love ice cream, but maybe love requires a loftier subject than ice cream, and maybe the same is with hope. Psychologists have done uh, some interesting research looking at what's the difference between how we use the words like want, wish, desire, hope. And most people want to reserve hope for things which are pretty deeply meaningful and sort of noble. Um, So, for example, we spent last weekend on the Sunshine Coast with a friend who has kidney cancer. Now, I think I can really use the word hope to say I deeply hope he is cured. I hope I will finish my PhD. A lot of time and effort gone in so far. I hope humanity will get their act together in caring for the environment. But what is hope? I ask lots of people this. It's a big concept, isn't it? How would you define hope? So it's different from optimism. If you're optimistic, you just expect that things are going to be fine, everything's going to be good. But hope runs deep in your gut. And if you hope for something, then you will do whatever you can to bring it about if and when it's possible. Tertullian, who's a a second-century church father, said hope is patience with the lamp lit. Isn't that a great image? You're you're poised. You're having to wait, but your lamp is lit. You're ready to act. What are you hoping for in your life at the moment? What are your deeply meaningful longings for the future? And who will bring them about? And that's what I want to look at today. There's a little bit of um, of where we're going. That's where we're going. Okay. So there's a few options, aren't there? So we could hope in ourselves. I was chatting with a person I know in the paddling community, not one of the people here, um, and he's been pretty successful in his career, and he said to me, I don't believe in hope. I don't need it. If I want to achieve a goal, I just make it happen. But okay, that's, <laughs> that's a bit out there, but it actually fits with how psychology has defined hope up until now. So I'm hoping my research is going to change this, but this is how, if you were doing a psychological part of a psychological research and we were trying to assess how hopeful are you, this is the questionnaire up until now that you would get. So the first part is um, basically have you been successful in achieving your goals? This is the agency. Agency is just the psychological jargon for action. Um, And the second part is... Can you think of lots of ways to achieve your goals in the future? What do you reckon? Is that hope? Does that catch it? 
I looked at it and thought, that's ridiculous. Because after I chatted to clients, I went to look at what the psychological research said. And I thought, that's just like being good at achieving your goals, basically. Um, and it's very self-centred, isn't it? It's, it's utterly in the self. But I would argue that myself alone, I can't bring about that many of my hopes just by myself. I hope to finish my PhD, but all sorts of life circumstances keep getting in the way. My husband fell off his push bike a few years ago in a coma. The whole shebang had to have a year off. I couldn't control that. I can't cure my friend of cancer. We can be supportive, but I have to hope in his doctors, his surgeon and in God for healing. I can't resolve the world's environmental crisis. I can put out the recycling, but don't we have to hope in a collective, a humanity, and dare I say it, in our politicians, <laughs> to, uh, to bring about those hopes? If you only hope in yourself to bring it about, your hope has to shrink and become quite small because what we can control is actually quite small. And even if we commit to intense action, there's something in us that, that gets in the way. We have limits on our own agency. So I have these grand plans. I head down to Manly in this co-working space. I'm going to sit and type at my thesis all day. And suddenly I find myself sitting on Manly Beach or deciding to go out for a paddle. <laughs> that, you know, self-discipline is, is not perfect. So, so even within our own agency, we have our limits. What would something bigger be that we could hope in? bigger than the self. Well, I think in the Western world, we certainly put a lot of hope in science. After all, isn't the uncovering of objective truth the way forward? And we have made leaps and bounds, there's no doubt about that. My poor children, Charlotte will testify to this, have been raised on the catch cry, girls, the research says, blah, 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 turn your phones off, eat this, don't eat this. Now, I am not anti-science at all. I've always loved it. I did a few years of a medical degree. I have an undergrad degree in science, a master's degree in science, my PhD is in science, just to say, like, this is my world. I'm the person that when they get on a plane, I don't buy better homes and gardens, I buy the new scientist. Like, I'm pro-science. But I recently read a book, which has scared me, called Wrong by David Friedman, and it's made me rethink a lot of my presuppositions about medical and psychological research. It's based on the work of a medical doctor and statistician called John, and I can't pronounce his name, Ioannidis. I think he's Greek. And he was appointed to John Hopkins Hospital in the States, so pretty prestigious hospital. And he was asked to analyse medical journals to see how patients fared with certain treatments. And in the book, he describes that when he started to do this, he was really flabbergasted. He looked at thousands of journal articles and in two out of three studies, within a few months or at most a few years, um, so two out of three studies, they were either refuted, total opposite results, or um, people said they were seriously exaggerated. Those results just weren't accurate. And to make it worse, he was examining one-tenth of one percent of the journal articles that make it into the most prestigious medical journals. These aren't dodgy journals. This is serious stuff. I, I just, I nearly fell over. I had to read that paragraph over and over again. And this book goes through all the ways in which what the, the serious science you'd think would be, oh, this is just true. Actually, it's not nearly that straightforward. Now, maybe you're not shocked. After all, 10 years ago, we were all having low-fat, 
not worrying about sugar. Now we're all off sugar and carbs and having high fat. And, you know, it does change, doesn't it? <laughs> One day it's saying uh, video games promote violence and then another research article comes out, no, 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 it's fine. Like, we are used to this change. But I think deep down I always thought, yeah, that's peripheral. Somewhere out there there's the serious scientists and they just get it right. They see truth and they get it. It's not that simple. Now, he's not saying pan all of science by any stretch and he says there's a body of work that is worth looking at. The problem is it turns out most of it is common sense that humanity has known for a very long time. Like fruit and vegetables are good for you. For years and years, that's what research says, we probably knew that, um, that happiness and a sense of belonging go hand in hand in the psychological research is really established. Well, I think we probably knew that. But those headlines that you see pumping up, you know, seven cups of coffee a day will extend your life by 10 years, take with a grain of salt because next month it probably won't be that. Science as the sort of ultimate truth is also problematic because... Um, Humans apply it, don't we? And we have created the atomic bomb as much as we have created cures for diseases. And we have biases and limits. <clears throat> now, another reason that I think... I'm, as I say, I'm not saying science isn't a source of knowledge, but it's one of many and to be just held among others. Um, and I've spent a lot of years now reading theological and philosophical and psychological reflections on hope. And over and over again... Hope is connected with a sense of meaning. Now, science tells us, eventually, facts about the world. That is absolutely true. But it doesn't tell us anything about the meaning of life. Why are we here? Where are we going? So if we're not going to put ourselves in, sorry, hope in ourselves entirely or in science entirely, where else might we put our hope? Well, you're in a church. <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> we might put it in God. But before I get to this, I want to show you, uh, it took me probably three years to, to work out a different understanding of hope compared to that first questionnaire that I showed you. So this is my proposal. So I'm going to work them through. Oh, I can see it up there. Oh, that's great. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to work through. So the bottom one. See what you think. See if you think this captures hope better than the first one. A worldview, which is sort of a belief that the future has meaningful possibilities, that things can change. If any of you have ever struggled with severe depression, you know that the thing that disappears in depression is that idea that there's any other possibilities. You lose a sense that anything can change. Kierkegaard says, hope is a passion for the possible, which I really like. The second, which is the bluey one, is a sense of agency. Now, it absolutely might be yourself, but it also has to include other people, external agency, that at some point you or someone else can bring about what you hope for. So you have to hope in your surgeon or your team or even in God. And lastly, the green is an emotional component that when you get a little glimpse... Okay, so think about what, what are you really hoping for for 2019? And just imagine it. And you get a little tiny taste of the excitement of what would happen if it came true, I hope. Um, and that's the sort of emotional part of hope, a little glimpse, a little taste of the emotion. So we had an example of this um, last weekend when we spent time with the, on the Sunshine Coast with our friend Tim, who's got cancer. And when we were there, he had been really, really sick. He'd had surgery uh, six weeks before. And we were building a shed with, with his wife. 
And occasionally he had enough strength to get up and use the drop saw and be part of it. And just that little glimpse of having energy and wellness and being useful really boosted his sense of hope. It was just a taste because then he had to have a big rest. (laughs) But it's enough, isn't it? Sometimes you just need to have eyes to see a little part of what you're hoping for. What what do you think? Put you on the spot now. I I think it's at least broader than that first definition which was just about the self. And it includes the sort of emotional part of hope. So what I want to do is, in the second half, look through each of those three aspects and um, have a think about how is Christian hope, how does Christian hope apply? Because that applies to anyone, I think, in any person. But Christian hope adds specific nuances to it. Okay. So does being a Christian impact a sense that the future has meaningful possibilities? Well, yes and no. So I recently, in the last two years, have asked about 800 people from atheists through to all sorts of religions, Christians, all these questions about hope. And one of them was this one, like, do you have a sense that the future has meaningful possibilities? Now, everyone said yes. They're all Sydney-siders, true Westerners. They all said yes. And I think people think that they believe this because it just seems self-evident. Well, of course the future's got meaningful possibilities. But... In the same way that people think that human rights are just self-evident, they don't realise both of those things are deeply entrenched in a Judeo-Christian worldview. We have grown up breathing the air of Christian foundation in our thinking. So if you were born in ancient Greece, you would not have a sense that the world has lots of meaningful possibilities. That this is the time when Jesus arrived because if you were born then, your philosophy on life would be that change was not possible and not a good thing. That the cosmos was a without beginning or end, perfect, eternal, unchanging. And Pythagoras, I always thought Pythagoras just did triangles, but he was actually a very important philosopher <laughs> in ancient Greece. And he reckoned that history was just an endlessly recurring cycle. So there's not that sense of possibility. And which groups in the world today might have that? Well, certainly some aspects of Hindu religion, like karma. Um, If you were really into astrology, that things are determined by the stars. Or people called philosophical determinists who say there is no such thing as free will. There still are groups that would not believe in possibilities. So it's possible to have those worldviews. But in a Christian way of understanding the world, God's creation is good right from the beginning, but not perfect in the Greek sense of unchanging. It's purposefully gifted with the potential for development. Think of the commands back in Genesis. Multiply, rule, care, serve. They are potent with change. So God started a project, this is a Christian way of seeing it, that is going somewhere for all of creation, human and non-human. And this is what gives our life meaning and purpose. It's from outside us. Now, the whole of Western society has taken this idea of a trajectory, um, but I think we we sometimes don't realise that where it comes from. It comes from this particular worldview. What about a Christian view of agency that we can act? Well, absolutely, of course we can. Um, It's not entirely just about the self bringing about our hopes, but it is part of hope. Because part of being made in the image of God is we're made to act in the world, aren't we? We're made to design. We have a God who is creative, who designs, who acts, and being made in his image. 
we do the same. God knew when he created Adam and Eve that, that we're now launching off into not just staying in a garden but designing farms and cities and civilizations and societies and orchestras and companies and the whole works. Um, so absolutely a Christian sense of hope includes us acting to bring about it. But it, there's a bigger picture too that we also put our hope in God. So I want to have a little bit of a look at Psalm 42, which we read. Now, this guy is really miserable. I don't know if you noticed when we read Psalm 42. It's, my tears have been my food night and day. And people are taunting him. He, I don't know what's going on in his life, but it's a mess. And people are saying, hey, you follow God. Well, where is your God now? And he's, he's low. And he says his bones suffer mortal agony. And I don't, again, anyone who's really struggled with mental health issues, it, it has a physical aspect always. And for him, it's in his bones. His bones are suffering. And he's overwhelmed. He says his waves and breakers, so waves and breakers have swept over him. He feels like he's been pummeled. Now, if you've grown up in Sydney, I'm sure you've been pummeled in waves at some point. Um, I've only ever seriously been pummeled once in my life and I'm a bit ashamed and embarrassed to say it was at Balmoral. <laughs> it was a really big swell coming in through the heads and, and there were serious waves going in and I'd only been paddling my ocean ski a few months and you know when you take up a sport at first you don't know what you can't do, you're just all gung-ho and you don't realise the danger and um, so anyway it was big waves going into Balmoral and a lot of people on the beach and I thought that's fine I'll just come in on the ski, bad move, flipped, I got churned up, I lost my hat, the paddle went, drank half of Middle Harbour, emerged to find all these people watching me, <laughs> very embarrassing. But it was actually quite scary. I didn't get back on my ski for another for well, a little while I think because it, it's a horrible feeling, waves and breakers washing over you, it's overwhelming. But then the psalmist takes a turn and he says, why are you so downcast on my soul? Put your hope in God. So when I'm counselling Christians who are depressed or anxious, I use this bit of the psalm all the time. He engages what we call the observer self. He steps outside himself and he says, what am I thinking? What am I feeling? And he gets a bit of perspective on it. So when you're feeling really negative emotions it's so important isn't it to be able to step outside and go what's going on for me it's hard to do at the time otherwise your thoughts and your feelings are just this lens through which you're interpreting the world you have to pull it down and go oh that's what's going on and get a bigger perspective and in fact you recent arguments have been that this capacity to step outside observe your own thoughts and feelings and then calm yourself down to see the big picture it's the heart of emotion regulation which covers all sorts of mental health issues. If you can do that, you will function better. And the Psalms model doing this really well. The Psalmist writes how he's thinking and feeling and he gets to look at it and he gets to pan back and see this big perspective, where is God in this? And he says to himself, put your hope in God. He's not just listening to himself think. He's talking to himself, put your hope in God. I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God. Now, we don't know why he's struggling. Is it a relationship that's gone sour? Is it a workplace bully? Is it a financial struggle? It's interesting in this psalm, he doesn't ask God to change his circumstance. 
Um, other times, people in the Bible do. There's nothing wrong with it. But he just wants a restoration of this deep, intimate relationship with God. There's that beautiful phrase, deep, calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. Isn't that magical? And he says his soul pants for God and thirsts for God. Now, it reminds me of when I'm paddling. Sorry for all the paddling references. <laughs> um, I get really, really nervous out to sea. It's part of why I took up paddling was because um, I tell people with anxiety all the time that they have to just sit with the symptoms. Okay, your heart's pounding, your stomach's churning. If something's important to you, push through that and push on. So I thought, well, I'm scared of the sea. I'll take up a sport that <laughs> involves going out to sea. Um, <clears throat> and I do get scared. My mouth gets really dry. I have a, a bladder in the back of my life jacket and I drink and drink and drink. And there's something about drinking when your mouth is really dry that calms you. It's really comforting. My anxiety drops. And now it's worth it. There's dolphins out there. There's whales out there. It's magical once I calm down. Um, but I wonder if that's how this psalmist feels. Like his mouth is dry. He's overwhelmed. He's anxious. And something about getting back to God is like drinking water and going, oh, it's okay. So that's not just an abstract belief, oh, there's a creator out there. That's a relationship. That's an emotional experience. And as we come to Christmas, is it nine days, ten days? It's very close. We remember that Jesus is the one who enables this relationship for us. And I want to think about, there's so many ways we can think about Jesus. We could see him as God. He is God. He, he's God come among us. He heals the sick, he raises the dead, he casts out evil, he calms the wind and the waves. But he also came to show us what it means to be a true human being. He was such a loving and wise man. I, I think Jesus is awesome when you read the stories of what he was like and what he did. Uh, do you, some of you might know the story of um, the woman caught in adultery. And now I don't know about you, but I'm the sort of person who always thinks of the funny or wise thing about like 12 hours after the event occurs. <laughs> think, oh, I should have said that. Jesus is the sort of person who thinks about it always at the time, just the right thing to say. So this woman's caught in adultery, and on the one hand, you've got the teachers of the law, and they're saying, according to our law, she deserves stoning, which she did. And then you've got this woman who's done a very hurtful thing, but um, nonetheless, is Jesus going to show compassion to her or is he going to side with the law? Like They're both important, justice, mercy, which, which way is he going to go? I think of it like a triangle. When I'm doing relationship counselling, I always talk about triangles. You know, we, which side are you going to align with, which person? And he's caught and he's just so clever because what he does is he says to the teachers of the law, you who have no sin cast the first stone, they just walk away. And then to her, no one has condemned you, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I think, man, if only I could think of things like that at just the right time. It's amazing. Now, I'm happy to put my hope in someone like that who can do mercy and justice. He didn't just come, though, to show us what it looks like to be a true human being. He also came to die to bring forgiveness. Now, if I'm going to put my hope in someone, I want to know they're not holding a grudge. 
personally. Like if I was having a think about what would be an analogy. If if someone's going to operate on me, I don't want to have just crashed into the surgeon's car in the car park before and he knows it's me. Like I I would not trust someone who's, who's got a grudge against me. And I think God actually has probably got every right to hold some grudges against us. We often spend a lot of time ignoring him um, and, and acting in ways that aren't how he's designed us to be as human beings. And yet he reaches out and he sends Jesus. He comes into this world and he offers forgiveness to us. But there is a catch, which is that we can't keep ignoring Jesus and expect the benefits of that forgiveness, which comes from that intimate relationship with him. But the offer is there. Now, a mother mind-boggling aspect of Jesus is he rose from the dead in a new body, a restored body. Now, I don't know if you remember, but Jesus actually has like fish and chips on the beach with his friends. They recognise him. So he's died three days, rose again, and they know who he is. He probably didn't have fish and chips. It's the Middle East. What, what you have fish and falafels? I don't know what, what they in the middle. Um, but there is continuity in this awesome spiritual body that he gets raised with. He could also go from the inside of a room to the outside without walking through the door, which is interesting when you think about in in, um, quantum physics, there are particles which can do that, which can just go from one place to another without moving between. Um, But there's also big differences. Yeah, sorry, that is the big difference. And he goes up to heaven. He can be in God's place. And God's promise, this is the awesome bit, this is the hope, is that he will do one day for you and me and the whole world what he did for Jesus, if we have our trust in him. So we will have restored and renewed bodies. Now, that's an extraordinary thing to hope for. I wouldn't mind a new body. It would be very nice. Um, So after we die, we sleep, and then a day will come when Jesus returns and renew all of creation. It's talked about as a new heavens and a new earth. I thought for years and years, even though I was a Christian, you know the Philadelphia cheese ad? There's cherubs on clouds. <laughs> I think that was my view of heaven. Somehow we floated off somewhere. I thought it's not going to be that corny. God's going to be there, but I didn't know quite where it was or what I'd be doing. But that's not what the Bible says. That's more from Michelangelo paintings and the Bible. No, no, God, there'll be a day God will descend and restore this whole world and us and wipe every tear from our eyes. And that intimacy with him that the psalmist wanted will be there. Have a look at this. This is Isaiah 65. It's quite long. But is this a promise? I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things not remembered. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I'll create. They, this is us, will build houses and dwell in them, plant vineyards, eat fruit, enjoy the work of their hands, not labour in vain. Before they call, I'll answer. While they're still speaking, I'll hear wolf and lamb feed together. Neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain. This is for God's people. This is the new heavens and new earth. I think that's really exciting. I don't want to sit around on clouds. I'd much rather plant vineyards and eat fruit and in some renewed, restored creation, in my renewed, restored body. And it's physical, isn't it? There's animals and wine, it's social, there's work and community, and it's spiritual. Now, we have limits on how much we can grasp this. Do you remember those? Does that ring back memories? Are you old enough to remember the time that that your mother said, get off the phone, I need to use it, because that was the only way anyone in the house could communicate with anyone? (laughs) Could you have imagined, if you're old enough to remember that, an iPhone back then? It's just, I just just wouldn't have even entered your head well certainly wouldn't have entered mine and now we're up to these are old like the the 
we're, is it 10 or X we have to call it? iPhone X, yeah. And now we have emails and amazing cameras. And what will iPhone Mark 100 be? Do you, think, do you think we can even imagine what is going to be in a phone? Is it going to be implanted in our heads? I don't know. What is it going to be? There's limits to our imagination. And it's the same with the new heavens and the new earth that God will bring. It's our ultimate hope. We can't, like that Isaiah 65 just gives us little glimpses, but we can't fully, fully imagine them. Um, two quotes from my two favourite theologians. I'll introduce them. C.S. Lewis, Narnia series author, I'm sure many of you know. He says, most people, if they'd really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. At present, we are on the outside, but all the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumour that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. We will put on glory that greater glory of which nature, like this earth, is only the first sketch. We're in 2D. The new heavens and new earth are going to be 3D. What about the question, will we hope in the new creation? Well, my second favourite theologian, Tom Wright, says, I don't imagine for a minute that in the coming age we will arrive at the point where we get bored. He says, in contrast, because... um, Because the God we know in Jesus is the God of utterly generous, outflowing love, there will be no end to the new creation of this God. That within the new age itself, there will be always more to hope for, more to work for, more to celebrate. And learning to hope in the present is learning not just to hope for a better place, but learning to trust the God who is and will remain the God of the future. So my last point, the glimpses part. Remember how my, my... Idea has three parts. There's the belief in a meaningful future, the action part, and then the glimpses. So how does being a Christian impact the glimpses of what we hope for? Well, we might see glimpses, like my, our friend with cancer could see glimpses. But here's the exciting thing. We can be the glimpses to the world of this new creation. Um, you know, when Jesus says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that, that's us. So we know a sure hope is that justice will be done one day. We don't have to rely on royal commissions in the big scheme of things, thank heavens. I mean, doing a good job, but it's not perfect. Um, But for you, every time you stand up for justice in the world, you are bringing in a glimpse of this new creation. When you stand up to the workplace bully, when you do the right thing, you are participating in bringing in God's kingdom. When you show compassion, it's like heaven coming backwards. When you choose to forgive rather than hold a grudge. I had a big challenge of this. We, um, I knew I was going to bump into a couple last week at my daughter's graduation who I was very angry with because I felt they'd treated her really badly. And I had the whole speech in my head rehearsed. <laughs> it wasn't a very nice speech, but this is, this is justice. This, this is, but it wouldn't have gone down well. And as I got there, God just put in my head, you know the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins, as we forgo those who sin against us. I thought, oh, damn, I can't, I can't say. I have to pray. I have to forgive them. I have to let it go. And that is participating in our hope in the new creation. When you create beauty in the knowledge, this is God's heart. Look at the beautiful world he created. As we participate in that, 
when we design things. Garden, I love gardening. I can't wait for gardening in the new creation. But I, I feel when I'm doing it that I'm, I'm part of it. This is a glimpse of what's going to happen. Or designing a building or a hairstyle or a meal. All of this is, is participating. When we bring order in the name of Jesus into this society... This is part of God's heart and part of our hope. The accountants and librarians of the world rejoice. You are part of the new creation, bringing it back. And finally, for all of us, when we choose to love those around us, especially those we struggle to love, this is perhaps most profoundly putting our hope in God. Remember that scripture. Now, these three remain faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. You know, this week, it's my final week of working before Christmas. It is chockers. Every year this happens. The three weeks before Christmas go ballistic. Why? Because people are booking in. I've got to see my family at Christmas. I need a counselling session. <laughs> I, need to, I need to prepare. I've got to see these people that I normally don't have to see and it's going to be intense and we're going to have difficult conversations or, oh, my gosh, this is going to bring up hard memories. Or, it's true. It's really interesting. Um, but... When you choose to love this Christmas day on your Christmas table, the person that you find hard, you're bringing in a glimpse of the new creation. Think of it like that. You're living out your hope. So we've looked at that hope is bigger than just in yourself. It's bigger than just in science. It's putting our hope in God who offers us in Jesus an awesome picture, not just of who we will one day be, but who the whole world will one day be. So I'll leave you with that quote from Psalm 42. Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my saviour and my God.